my name is Fran Stoddard. Today, the Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on public engagement in partnership with ICMA, the International City-County Management Association, a group that advances professional local government worldwide. For this call, we have three terrific speakers who will help us understand how municipal leaders can conduct authentic citizen engagement that helps meet the goals of local government while strengthening communities. Joining us are Jim Bennett, City Manager in Biddeford, Maine, and former President of ICMA. Hi, Jim, and welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon or good morning or good evening, wherever people may be today. Okay. We also have Mike Bester, former City Manager of Golden, Colorado, joining us from Golden. Hi, Mike. Hi, Fran. And Glad to be we here. Also, yeah, it's great to have you here. And we have Kirsten Sackett, the Community Development Director in Ellensburg, Washington. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you, Fran. It's a pleasure to be here. Kirsten is just getting over a cold, so she has a beautiful voice happening today, but it's a little softer than I've heard it in the past. So thank you all for being with us today. Before we get to our program, I'm just going to cover a few quick logistics. Each guest will offer brief five- to seven-minute presentations, and then we'll have an interactive time for questions from today's participants. We have over 500 registrants for the call today, so we have muted all of our listeners to get as clean an audio signal as possible. In your email is a link to our Google document. Hopefully you're checking it out now. It's a shared online document for note-taking and questions so you can interact with us. You can open that document in your browser to follow along while Orton, Kate, Orton's Caitlin Davison takes notes uh, of the presenters' uh, stories and their answers to your questions. These notes will be proofed and refined after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. We encourage you to open the Google Doc now and check it out. You can add your own comments or questions to the documents in real time in the edit mode. It's a good idea to skim there through there now and to see the questions that have already come in. We've quite a few have been submitted. I think uh, over uh, almost 30 questions have already been submitted. So we don't uh, need redundancy. If there's a question that you have that's already there, um, maybe you can hold off. Since we have an unusually large number of registrants on this call and the edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time, if you're not active on the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow for others to uh, edit in the document. We will also leave this document up after the call for your continued input and reference. Then in a few days, we'll send links to the call uh, with the call notes and recording to all registrants. If you're having any trouble with the Google Docs during the call, clicking the refresh icon should fix it. And if you're having other technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at C. Davison, C-D-A-V-I-S-O-N, at Orton.org. Thanks. So now on to our guests. First up is Jim Bennett. He is the city manager in Biddeford, Maine. He was recently president of the uh, ICMA. Jim has an impressive history of public service in Maine, beginning at the age of 21 as an elected municipal official. Over his 35 years of municipal service, the communities he has served have received a number of recognitions, including All-American City designation. He has been recognized by ICMA for several outstanding programs implemented under his direction, as well as awarded the Manager of the Year by Maine Town and City Managers Association. So, with all of your wisdom, we are so 
pleased that you're with us today. Welcome, Jim, and go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very nice introduction. So um, very early in my career, I figured out um, as I went to work for various communities, and I've made my sort of mock working for communities generally that have had image issues where people were a little embarrassed by um, what was going on in their communities. So since 1990, with one exception, I've worked for four major communities in Maine, and I would say that people would generally say they were some of the toughest communities. What is that one of my core beliefs is that everybody wants to be proud of where they live. They want to be proud of their hometown, and I think that's a very powerful force and motive, and I think that um, looking back on what Biddeford has done and what they're doing now, um, that's kind of the core. Real quick, our community is uh, about 22,000. We're a uh, positively growing community. We're the sixth largest community in the state. We are on the coastline of Maine, but you should not confuse that with the fact that um, it very much is an old industrial community, um, used to, um, predominantly a textile community. Um, at one point, we had between 10 to 12,000 people that worked in the mills in our downtown, which eventually um, basically drew up, dried up, and got abandoned. So um, what happened was the community went through a process over a two-year period to develop a master plan for the downtown. And they used um, three partners, the city, Heart of Biddeford, which is a um, Main Street, Maine um, um, organization, and uh, the Orton Family Foundation. And what they did is called the program Hot Works. And that um, basically means that every, they believe that there's always something special about every community. The process involved three steps. Step number one was storytelling. Step number two was neighborhood meetings. And, of course, the third step was uh, the plan. So what do we mean by storytelling? They started with a simple question. What matters to people? What matters to them as citizens and people that live in the community? And specifically, what matters to them about downtown? They had a number of steps where they engaged people. They had signs up that were in storefronts, both empty storefronts as well as storefronts that were active, and said, please call in and tell us your story. They had all kinds of listening opportunities, and they really reached out to some of the big festivals that happened in the community, in particular a, a Franco-American festival, in order to grab a lot of the um, elderly Francos that lived in the community. One of the other pieces they did is they asked all the high school students and made it a requirement that they had to go interview their grandparents and ask them what was special about their community and why they were living in Biddeford. And what was amazing through that process is that high school kids that were embarrassed, that were um, picked on by other communities and, and referred to as trash town, found out that at one point the community was the place to be and the downtown was the place to be. You see, uh, about 30 years earlier to this process, the community um, voluntarily put a trash plant right in the middle of their downtown. And that trash plant, um, despite all the best efforts, basically stunk. And it put a, a smell and a cloud over the community, and you cannot um, get away from it when you're in the downtown. And obviously that had an impact on that. Those stories led to values, and those values led to a vision. And so once those visions were put together and the values were put together, they had a series of 35 neighborhood means, um, essentially seven different neighborhood means for each of the five values. From that, the neighborhood means um, told people what was important, and from there, what, what they felt needed to be done in the downtown. And so from that, they developed a strategy. That became the basis for the plan. That plan led to um, 
process where eventually the community made a very big decision. It decided to tear down, buy and tear down the trash plant. The trash plant was probably the, the largest taxpayer in the community, employed 80 people. It also had a significant reduction because of the host fees in terms of its tipping fee. So this was a serious economic decision that the community made. So in 2012, the city voted to buy the facility, and by 2013, it was torn down. So what was the results? Since 2014, the commercial values in our downtown have averaged, averaged a 60% increase in value since that date. Every single one of those properties have sold at a higher value, so none of them have been negative. Negative. The residential values are up by 12%. There's been an excess of $38 million in new value created. And of 1.6 million square feet of basically abandoned mill space, um, there's about 400,000 of that that was taken prior to the decision to tear it down. Today, there's only 400,000 square feet that's left. I'm happy to say that one of our greatest challenges right now is that we have to deal with a parking problem. As a result of this, the community has really been um, recognized through numbers of articles as how to do downtown uh, redevelopment. Ironically, we believe we're the fastest community in the state growing under the age of 30. Our population, um, average median population right now is 35, while Portland, Maine, which you hear a lot about, actually has a median population of 42, and the state as a whole has a positive 43. So what I think the lessons were for all of you to be thinking about, I don't think you should ever underestimate how important pride is in the community. I think when you talk to individuals about things that are important to them, they'll talk to you about their family and friends. They'll eventually get on to talk about where they went to school or college, but it won't be long before they talk to you about hometown. Pride and having a pride in the community is a powerful, powerful motive. I think you need to start with what matters. You need to listen to citizens and truly listen. When you ask them what's important to them and you connect to them, you, you can be able to engage them. As a former president of ICMA used to say, Dave Charles, no one cares what you know until they know that you care. And that's an important part of this process. Once you have understanding of what's important, you convert those values into action. You convert what matters to them and then act on what that makes matter. And then once you've gone through the process, you start to cycle all over again. I hope that's been helpful, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the benefit story with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jim. And, uh, I, I love the, the pride piece, and so many towns are looking for how to bring youth in and young people uh, back to their towns. So it's a strong and powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. We will get on to our second pre presenter now, uh, Mike Dester, just retired last year after 21 years as city manager of Golden, Colorado. During his tenure as city manager, Mike kept the city in solid financial condition and helped transform an almost empty downtown into a vibrant destination. Mike led the city in completing and implementing many long-range plans, including a two-year heart and soul project that formed the city's Vision 2030 plan and a new comprehensive plan. Mike, it's so wonderful to have you here. Go ahead. It's good to be here, Fran, although I hate to follow Jim. He did such a great job explaining the heart and soul process. But let me take a little bit different viewpoint, maybe a little more political uh, viewpoint. Golden, we finished the our heart and soul process in 2010, so it's a seven-year-old document right now. Let me show you the things that tell me that the process absolutely nailed what our citizens were thinking about. 
first of all, a little bit of background. Golden is very prosperous now, quite, uh, also dealing with a, with a downtown parking problem, which are wonderful problems to have. But back when we started in 2009, even though that was the, the pit of the recession, we were still reasonably prosperous. Our, our housing values were holding up. We are on the uh, far western edge of the Denver metropolitan area in the foothills. So we, we were prosperous. So Heart and Soul is not just for communities that are struggling. It really helped us as a community. We had been working for many years, you know, trying outreach, trying to find out what citizens want, trying, you know, doing surveys, doing everything uh, we could possibly do. Um, but Heart and Soul took us um, so far above everything we had, that we had ever tried before. So now, seven, eight years after we did that process, um, you know, it still works. So let me tell you, the um, the process, and it was a lot of work. We had um, We had a lot of community involvement. On our core committee, we had a lot of staff. Our planning staff was the primary driver of this. Uh, and they, you know, they worked, they essentially gave up their whole summer of 2009 by having uh, community meetings uh, in the neighborhoods every other Saturday for the entire summer. And they did it and, and had a ball because they got to get very creative. They got to get out of the strict legal requirements the planners, you know, have to function in. And they got to use their imagination. They came up with a great process. They got to see it through the completion. So after we completed our process in 2010, City Council uh, reviewed it and adopted it as uh, called it Vision 2030. This is where we're going in the next 20 years. Planning Commission also did that. Planning Commission then took that document, rewrote the comp plan with all the usual public hearings, but it was the easiest comp plan uh, adoption I've ever seen in my entire career. The um, the process identified ten priorities uh, for the city. The top three were an accessible and walkable community, active outdoors in the environment, safe, clean, and quiet neighborhoods. So in 2015, we had a mayor and a city council member who were up for re-election. This election was extremely contentious, one of the most contentious we'd had in um, in a very long time. Because what had happened is, to meet the citizen priorities, council had accelerated our traffic calming plans. We would narrowed streets, we widened sidewalks, and we had been doing that for a lot of years, but we did this for this for one neighborhood of homes of about $400,000 value. Well, higher up the hill were homes of eight dollars $900,000. And those people drove through this $400,000 neighborhood excessively to speed. They did not like it that we made them slow down. And they got very angry. And some of them got extremely nasty. But prosperous people used to get in their way. They ran very good, credible candidates against the mayor and city council. And the mayor and city councilor won re-election very handily. So that tells me that, that despite the public opposition from this small group, the heart and soul process, because it nailed the citizen uh, feelings of safe neighborhoods, quiet neighborhoods, ability to walk, ability to ride their bikes, um, they, the council, the elected officials were doing truly what the, what the majority of citizens wanted. 2016, the city followed up with a national citizen survey. Many of you, I'm sure, do that national citizen survey. Golden ranked well above the national average on um, 
traits such as community engagement, confidence in government, welcoming citizen improvement. We also in 2016 did a Gallup Wellbeing Index. Some of you may be familiar with that. Another major um, uh, survey that showed people had strong, strong feelings about sense of community, quality of government, um, and it's just you know it's everybody's working together. The um, council is feel strong. They have the courage to go do controversial projects because they know that the citizens of Golden want to be able to walk, they want to be able to ride their bike, they want, um, you know, pedestrians should have more value than automobiles. At the same time, downtown continues to prosper, get busier and busier. Uh, downtown was one of the uh, uh, the key values that people had. So it's nice to see uh, confident elected officials um, understanding what the citizens want and working to achieve that. Okay. So I think, um, yeah. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, Mike. No, that's okay, Fran. I think uh, I think it's about it. I think I... Yeah. Well, it's a it's another yeah, terrific story, and and such a powerful one that that it's not the folks with the money or the biggest voice that won. It really was the people, and through their vote, they kept in the people that made those changes happen, and. Uh, it's it's such a great story, Mike, so thank you so much. We'll get more in-depth and in some of the details in a minute with our Q&A. So our, our third guest is uh, Kirsten Sackett. She is the former Director of Planning and Building for Cortez, Colorado. During her tenure in Cortez, she worked closely with Cortez Heart and Soul as a coordinator throughout the entire process, even though she was also Director of Planning, also as the staff liaison to the city council and as an advocate of the heart and soul process. Now, as director of community development in Ellensburg, Washington, Kirsten has brought heart and soul to her new town as a means of engaging the community in crafting a new comprehensive plan that will guide Ellensburg through its next 20 years of growth. And she might sound a little soft if you need to bring your, your volume up a little bit, um, she's just getting over a cold, so we want to welcome Kirsten. Thank you so much for being here today, and go ahead. Thank you again, friends, and I do apologize for the voice. Um, so I'm just going to give you my background in heart and soul, and we have some wonderful examples from both Cortez and Ellensburg that if I don't share now, we'll definitely get to in the Q&A later. But I wanted to kind of n narrow down on some of the actual details, like how we achieved what we did. So for some background, um, the Cortez Heart and Soul process began in 2012, and I would say that it's effectively still going today. Um, Cortez is located near the Four Corners area, southwest Colorado. They have a smaller population of about 8,500, and they are a little less affluent than the rest of Colorado with a median household income of 39,000. And I would just say that Heart and Soul was a wonderful process for the community. It brought people together. It was just so fulfilling. Um, wonderful community, however, I did leave two years ago um, after being in Cortez for nine years. When I came to Ellensburg and found out that we needed to adopt a new comprehensive plan, I knew we needed to do the heart and soul process. It's, it's a wonderful way to reach out to your community. Um, things about Ellensburg that are pertinent, it's population of about 19,000, but it's also a college town. It's home to Central Washington University, 
the enrollment this year is of over 11,000 students, so keep that in mind when you look at our overall population numbers, where some claim residency and others don't. So what I want to emphasize today is know your demographics. Know who is in your community. You need to be deliberate in who you need to approach in order to be truly representative of your community. So if you're saying, we're not hearing from folks in the community, well, well, who are they exactly that you need to reach out to? So I'm going to refer you to a tool that the Orton Family Foundation has developed. It's called the Community Network Analysis, and it's fabulous. It's basically telling you to go pull up your demographics, look at it, and determine, okay, what, what does our population consist of? Is it 20% this ethnicity? Is it 10% this age group? Is it 15% this income level? And then be really deliberate in figuring out, okay, well, then I need to reach out to these folks in this way. So, for example, in Ellensburg, more than 20% of our population is age 19 or younger. So we deliberately approach the students at the high school and the middle school. We work through counselors. We work through the student councils. And we talk to them about ways that we could reach out to the students. What's the best way to get your fellow students to tell us what they love about Ellensburg? What would keep them here? What would they like to see improved? We went to the preschools to share surveys with the parents. Um, we even got in line with the social services, and they actually included our heart and soul survey with their monthly site visits when they went to meet with the parents um, that were receiving services. We attended soccer tournaments. We grabbed parents on the days that the kids were getting their pictures taken. We were asked not to bother the parents during games, um, but it was a really easy and great way to just capture them on a Saturday morning when they were there with their kids. And of course, they're very busy, but it was another tool for reaching out. We also deliberately attended events geared towards the university students to gather their input. So in addition to knowing the who you need to reach, you need to be deliberate in how you approach your audiences. I just gave you a few examples, but I wanted to tell you a little bit more about Cortez. Part of their population that you needed to know was that 30% of the population consisted of the Hispanic and Native American communities. So we knew that we needed to reach out to these segments segments of the population. But how do you go about that? So in Cortez, we were lucky, really lucky to have a wonderful volunteer member of our Heart and Soul team who was Hispanic herself, but she was actually new to the community. She had to get to know who the leaders in the Hispanic community were. She was advised, go to the churches and get, get them to be familiar with who you are. And she came to found that um, it was most easily accessible to the Hispanic population to visit with them on Sundays. We found that they work, you know, Monday through Saturday all day long, and it was hard to get them to come to events. So they said, go to places where they familiar and where they are familiar, and they will trust you. So go to the churches and make sure that you go at times that they're available. We also found that we needed to have. Um, folks that could um, have things translated into Spanish and could be liaisons in that way. We found that if we were going to work with them and host events, we needed to find out what they were comfortable with. And in the end, we ended up hosting like a, a specific block party at a Hispanic church on a Sunday on Mexican Independence Day where we provided funds for them to cook the food. And we had city leaders show up, um, like the police chief, he, he was told, please don't come in your uniform. 
We don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. So we, we just put a lot of thought and effort into what would be comfortable for them, where they'd be more willing to talk to us. In terms of the Native Americans, we had two neighboring reservations. We had the um, Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and the Navajo Reservation. With the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, they were really quite close to Cortez. Their reservation headquarters was Toyot, Colorado, only like 10 miles away. And so we made efforts to reach out to them by sending letters to the tribal leaders, and that really didn't go anywhere. And what we found to be effective was to have our volunteer community members continually inviting members of this tribe to our meetings to the point where they finally were like, okay, we'll come. We started having conversations about diversity. We said, hey, we would like to come and talk to you about what you love about the community, how we can improve it. And they really weren't interested in having those conversations. Um, what ended up working was we were working on a beautification plan for the city, and they were interested in that. They wanted to give their feedback and participate, and they invited us to the tribal headquarters on their terms. They set up the venue. They invited folks themselves. They provided the food, and then they invited us. Um, later on, I might tell you a little bit more about how those conversations went, but in, ultimately we were able to get their feedback on the things that mattered to them namely this beautification plan for the city and the entrance that they viewed as they came into the city from their end. Um, and then finally, what I really wanted to focus on today was how do you communicate with your community about events? How do you gather input? How do you share it back? So you need to figure out what works best for you. But in order to do so, you need to try everything. In Cortez, we tried the newspaper, uh, the city website, a heart and soul website, PSAs on the radio, radio interviews, we mailed postcards, we posted flyers around town, we created email lists, we had signs up on the scrolling banks at the sign, uh, or sc scrolling signs at the banks and hotels, um, and then at events. We would pull the folks who attended and say, how did you hear about the event? And then we would tweak things as we moved forward based on what we were hearing. So for Cortez, we found that the radio really wasn't effective, so we adjusted our budget to um, other areas that would be more effective ways to spend the money. We found there that personal emails and word of mouth were really the best way to, to work it. And when we would go around and hang up flyers and have personal conversations, that went a long way too. So spend a lot of time on your communication methods and who you're reaching out to. And then finally with that, make sure you share back with the community what you heard from them. Show them that you heard, that you're listening, and that you made some changes. And, and that's what I wanted to share with you at this point. Kirsten, thank you so much. I, I can imagine that everybody must be incredibly inspired by all three of you and uh, what you give to this. What I uh, loved about Kirsten's uh, feedback with the soccer games. We also hear that football games are a terrific way to get out there and meet people in your community that maybe wouldn't step into City Hall unless they had to. Um, and, and Cortez also really worked hard to get that invitation onto the uh, Ute Reservation, and that was a, a, a very special and, and opened up other opportunities for communication. Uh, so anyway, you, you all have fantastic stories. We want to get on to your questions. We have lots of them. Um, I'm going to save the, the first question that was um, on our list, which I'm going to give to Kirsten, but I'm going to let her just have a sip of water first and and go down to, um, for Jim, there's, there's one that came in specifically for you, Jim. 
What strategies did you use to manage stakeholders who resisted your plans to revitalize the city center, and why were they effective? I'd love to say something really um, bright, like it's the um, slogan from Survivor or something, you outwit, outlast, and outplay. Um, but I, my sense is that in all the places I've been that we have made transformations within the community, what happens is that if you give a community an, um, the ability to become very um, positive and, and proudful of their community when they haven't had that before, they will follow you pretty much anywhere as long as it makes sense and you're doing good things. I mean, it, it's it's sort of um, like um, getting your first really good report card as a young child. Um, it is such an overwhelming joy. And there is a, uh, you know, there are these things talking about how do you make your citizens love your community, fall in love with your community. And so what happens is that the negative people are trying to swim against this emotion where people are saying, no, we are doing what we want with our community because we care and we love. And eventually they just figure out that, that they, can't, they can't turn that tide. Um, using Jim Collins' work, um, the flywheel just gets turned in so much that there's so much positive momentum that you can't, you can't prevent it from going on. So I think it's just stay the course, continue to do it, continue to find those things that people are going to be really proud for, for and keep at it. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. And then um, I'm going to go to, to Mike for the, the next two. I, I'd say both of these questions you might be able to answer together. Mike, one specifically for you from uh, Karina from Texas, and she asks, how did you stand strong in your position to overrule personal agendas in the bureaucracy, which is so similar to Kelly's concern uh, from Vermont? How do you get a reluctant uh, town official to get on board with a good project? So how did you um, work with within your bureaucracy to get at least the the city um, on board, Mike. Okay, well I think it's important to understand that when we did the process, I had been city manager already for 16 years, so <laughs> all my key people understood the importance of looking at the big picture. You know, we had a and we had a culture that said, if you're not living on the edge, you are taking up too much space. And I tried to encourage people to to take risks and 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 not worry about that. So we had a good culture, we had a good group. Plus, we also lucked out and had a um, a new young mayor who had just been elected. He beat the old incumbent mayor. Um, we had a couple new young city council members, so uh, the stars were totally aligned uh, when uh, when they had the opportunity to do the heart and soul process. But when you do meet resistance, you know I think it's key whether you're talking about staff people or whether you're talking about elected officials that you play chess and not checkers, right? The difference between chess and checkers, checkers, every piece moves the same. Chess, every place, every piece is totally unique. And that's the way it is with people, whether you're working for them uh, or they work for you. You have to find out what, what makes sense to them, what's, what's their strong buttons. Elected officials, you know, what did they say in the last campaign? Did they have a vision that they wanted to talk about? Well, this is, might be a good way to, for them to get support for their vision. Um, were they, you know, were they campaigning because cities out of touch with the, with the constituents? This is a good way for them to deliver on that promise. And 
and staff, it's, we made it so important for every department to be involved. Let me give you an example. The third highest priority identified in our process was safe, clean, and quiet neighborhoods. Safe, clean, and quiet neighborhoods. Well, you can interpret that a lot of different ways. The police chief wants to interpret that we need more cops. The, um, you know, the electric department might say, well, we need more street lights. The public works department may say we need to narrow the streets or we need to buy another street sweeper. So you can take a simple sentence like that and every department then can argue, you know, that obviously we need more money because this is what it said. But to really understand what happened, you had to be involved in the process all the way along. You had to know how, how things were interpreted and, and what the exact input was. And so the departments that choose not to participate enthusiastically are going to be at a disadvantage in budget discussions. So then, of course, once the process starts, just like Jim said, it does build on itself. And then when you see that this is going to translate into year after year after year and how you spend your money, um, it's, you can get staff involved pretty quickly, I think. It begins to prove itself. Thank you, Mike. Yep. Um, Kirsten, back to you and, and up to the top on, on buy-in. David from New Jersey wonders, as a planning um, agency dealing with long-range issues where solutions won't be implemented for many years, how do we address the concerns of a public primarily interested in what can be done now? Any quick tips? Yeah, Anna, as you begin engaging with your community, try to identify action items that you can take right away, your low-hanging fruit, if you will. It might be something minor like beautifying downtown with some planter boxes, uh, but it should be something highly visible so the community can see, and this helps them feel as though their voices were heard. And when you do something, advertise that you did it, maybe even brag about it. In the meantime, continue having those conversations about the long-range stuff. You know that in Cortez, we had a lot of naysayers saying, oh, is this going to be another long-range plan that just sits on the shelf? And we had a really unique opportunity when in the midst of doing our heart and soul process, CDOT, the Colorado Department of Transportation, started a, a project where they're going to rip out our highway, Highway 491, and, and revise it. And one of the things we're hearing from the community was, our entrances into town are ugly, and the medians don't look pretty, and we don't have any nice gateways. And so it was something that folks were really concerned about. And so... It actually took a while, but we right away started conversations with CDOT and with City Council. We got funds allocated to go towards the, the state project to revise um, the plans that they had drafted without our community input and, and change them up for, for the better. And there's plans still being implemented today. And so it's pretty exciting when the community can see something happen in front of them. Terrific. Thank you. I'm going to get to uh, communications. We're going to come back to Kirsten about engagement because she's got some great tips there that I'm sure um, uh, others might might add to. But I know that Christine um, from Texas is interested in communicating uh, the benefits of, of um, engagement to citizens. And then a little later on, Mary from Oregon is interested in the latest trends in engagement. What's the latest technology? And also, Jennifer from Colorado, how did you advertise for these events? So, Mike, do you want to take the first stab at how, how do you communicate out to the larger public about what's going on and how to get them in, engaged in your engagement efforts? 
Well, first of all, if you have a really good core group of people managing the process, and you know, not just from the city, obviously all the volunteers and the people that you can get involved who brainstorm and come up with a lot of great ideas. So we did we did all the usual things, right? You know, the, our uh, monthly newsletter, and we had um, we had a banner hung across downtown. Uh, we did uh, direct mailings. Our, the core gathering process were. Uh, block, we called block parties during the summer in 2009. Every other weekend we had one in a different neighborhood. And we would send targeted mailings to people come join us. But the thing that really made the difference is when staff showed up in the morning and started putting together the, the site. So we had canopies and we had, um, we had a, a bicycle mechanic show up. We had veterinarians there who could, who would look at dogs. We started cooking hot dogs. And then we would blow up a jumping castle right in the street. Well, once that jumping castle went up, word spread very quickly from kid to kid who started bringing their parents down. And then we had people talking to them and say, you know, would you share your story of Golden? What do you like best about Golden? Can we, can we videotape your discussion of what you like? And, um, you know, just when the circus event would roll into the neighborhood, uh, and we had something attracting the kids, we brought everybody else. There's been a lot of other good ideas in various heart and soul projects. One of my favorites was one community that had a brew pub that was very supportive of this. They uh, developed a new beer called Love It or Leave It IPA. They advertised an event um, to get people to come to this this tap tapping, and they had blank bar coasters around with Sharpies at all the tables asking people, to write down what the community meant to them. And so, you know, it was, I'm sorry I missed it. It sounded like a good party. But <laughs> don't underestimate the uh, the ability of your people to come up with really wild and crazy ideas that really work. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And I, I'm going to go back to Kirsten for um, some other engagement approaches and techniques. Many people from... California to Idaho, Oklahoma, and Nova Scotia are really interested in how you engage with people, maybe young families with young children, with limited capacity or, or time, maybe transportation issues, uh, some people who work at night, multiple jobs, overcoming language barriers. There, uh, someone else, you know, how do you, how do you reach those people outside the mainstream and who are marginalized? These might not, you know, maybe they'll go to a block party, maybe they won't. That's a, that's a, a step for a lot of people. Uh, there's a whole nother group that might not get to City Hall or the block parties. Uh, Kirsten, what are, what are your thoughts for helping with people who are, um, perhaps marginalized or who have other issues, uh, other barriers to joining in this engagement? What worked for you? It goes back to what I talked about before, about really knowing the audiences that you need to get to and then being really deliberate in what you do. So like Golden, we also held a lot of block parties. We specifically chose some locations right next door to some trailer parks. We had a lot of them there. And we tried to make them family-friendly, as did Golden, Colorado. We would barbecue. We'd have ice cream. We'd have pinatas. We'd have games for the kids. And it was more just fun. And we'd have somebody set up there with a camera to do interview stories for those that were comfortable. Um, We also were really careful in crafting some what we called community storytelling, where we would, we we hosted 20 
smaller events where we would deliberately reach out to a certain population. Um, for instance, one day we went to the soup kitchen and we talked with a group of folks. Another time we talked with some self-proclaimed artists in the community and, you know, we spent an hour with them just talking about what they loved. We, we would go to people's homes if they requested us doing that. And we really just tried to make sure everyone had an opportunity. Um, we held some events at the recreation center that had a daycare facility in it and advertised, okay, if you come, we have free daycare. We didn't really get a lot of people that took us up on that in Cortez, but I know in some other locations it worked well to do that. So you just really need to think about the time of day, the locations people are coming um, to, you know, just pick places that they're comfortable with. I already mentioned going to the soccer fields. Just really think about uh, what's most useful, the best place to go. And, and a quick uh, follow-up from that. Uh, there was a question about how you might identify leaders of these diverse groups. Are you looking out for leaders and, and work with and through them? Yeah, technically they – you might want to, like, look for a named leader, but a lot of times they just emerge naturally. You know, the person that knows everybody, the connector in town, that's what we did with the Hispanic community. Our volunteer found the right people to talk to, and it, it was usually like a, a pastor or a church leader for the Hispanic community. There were certain members of the tribal uh, community that were just known names. And so, yeah, it's very important to figure out who those folks are and when you do your community network analysis, you're going to identify who, what groups do we need to reach out to, specific, you know, demographic populations, but also what are some of the, like, nonprofit organizations or some more formal groups that we need to get to. And then you're going to list the names of the people. And sometimes you're going to sit down with a group of folks and you're going to be hashing this out. You might think of one name who then refers you to somebody else. And when you diagram all of it, you'll realize there are some connectors in the community that will get you where you need to go. It's a really good exercise to follow. Right. Terrific. It, it is a very cool exercise. Uh, I'm going to uh, head down to nuts and bolts. Uh, this is actually related. Uh, Mike, I'm looking to you to talk about, uh, to this woman uh, from Connecticut. She says, our city sometimes holds public information meetings in the middle of the workday, making it difficult for residents to engage, and we've, we've talked about that. You really need to do it at other times, off hours, um, in the evening, uh, on weekends. Uh, I wondered what your thoughts were on, on balancing your staff did go out on weekends and during the evenings. How did you, uh, how were you kind of able to do that? And, and actually Rodney from Colorado says, how do, how do you do a budget for such unique activities? How did you handle that? Well, the budget we pretty much made up as as we went along because we we really didn't have any idea. But you know, the total amount, rent, renting uh, Jumping Castle, uh, buying hot dogs, uh, is pretty insignificant compared to the whole total budget. We really didn't worry too much about about the cost of it. We got we got veterinarians to volunteer to come to a specific uh, block party. We got bicycle mechanics to volunteer to come. Um, so the you know the cost was was primarily just staff time, and uh, so we would obviously give comp time or overtime when the people that earned that. Um, yeah, it's hard, you know, if you've got um, if you've got a board like county commissioners often do that meet during the day, and it's hard sometimes to get them to meet at night. But if you can get them to realize that the heart and soul process is kind of a supplement to what they hear, that the um, 
that the hardcore people that are going to come to the public meeting and sometimes every public meeting and and complain or moan or whatever um, are not representative of the community, so you got to reach out and beyond that. The there, I don't think there's any way around uh, going 24/7 on a process to, to try to really identify the people because you you got to reach out. You got to go to the the Lions Club meetings. You got to go to the Rotary Club meetings. You got to go to the um, you know to the churches. You got to you just you just have to do that. If the uh, if the elected body are going to continue to meet just at inconvenient times. Then you gotta you gotta figure out strategies to work around them to get the to get the input from the people and then bring it forward. Great, thanks, Mike. We're gonna jump into challenges now. Uh, so in Pennsylvania, trust is key to deep engagement. What are some ways to build trust after perhaps getting off to a rocky start? Um, there are a number of people that are interested in in hurdles or rough spots. Um, coupled with how they were or were not able to overcome challenges. So, Jim, do you want to try to, how do you, uh, what are some ways to build trust? Um, and this is interesting, after getting off to a rocky start. And are there are there stories of hurdles and rough spots that you had to get over, and how did you do that? Um, well, I'm coming back, I, a couple of things. Um, I think one thing that you um, want to be able to do is get people to buy in that something's really going to happen. Um, perceptions are very subconscious, um, and if you're going to change somebody's perception, I think you have to um, force them to challenge their own assumptions about that. And so, as we were talking about earlier, um, trying to make visual changes, um, I'm reminded by a story when I was uh, much younger and long before cell phones or any of that, I was a volunteer firefighter, and the local coffee place burnt in the middle of the night. It basically burnt flat, and we had people that drove into the into the, into the the uh, parking lot and got out of the car before they realized there were all kinds of fire trucks and no, no store, and that made me think a little bit about um, how do you get people to pay attention, and so I refer to it as sort of the windshield wow. When somebody goes, wow, what's going on here, then you've got them to challenge those assumptions. Once you get them to challenge your assumptions, then I think you can get them to um, really begin to look at the possibilities. In terms of challenges, as you, you hopefully will end up doing things that are going to end up um, helping you with that sort of windshield wow, as I would say that. But if you make a mistake, you got to stand up and say, okay, we didn't get this one right. Um, and then you got to ask people, okay, what was it that wasn't right about it? What, um, what, what didn't we hit in terms of what's important to you? Um, and make sure it's the people that you're listening to are the people that are actually um, trying to be part of the positive change and not the ones that are being the sort of like the grumpy old guys that are on the Muppets that are out there just complaining about stuff. <laughs> Great. You gave me a beautiful visual. Go ahead. Yeah. Franz, Mike, can I just add something to that? Is that that part of the heart soul process is to reach out to those grumpy old guys too, and to and to get their input. So they've got to understand that they're being listened to also, along with everybody else. And by interviewing them and collecting their stories and asking them what's important, you make your process transparent. And you say, okay, see, we're doing this with all these other communities too. And then 
Yes, you know, you did say this, but look at all these hundreds of people over here who said something totally different. So um, I think it's a good way to, to get people to think and to uh, a, a good excuse to, to to go and reach out to, to some of us grumpy old guys. <laughs> well, Libby from South Carolina um, said, our area seems to be so beaten down. Do you have any ideas concerning how we might light a fire to get folks more engaged in the community? And, and Mike, maybe you're, you know, how do you get those grumpy old guys and people who just feel like, oh, this place just isn't like it used to be. Uh, we just don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, how do you turn that around? Well, you ask them, you know, what's, what I think Zimmerman um, Kirsten said that, you know, why did you move here? Why do you live here? What's, you know what was great about this place. What what are the what are the assets of this place, and try and get people talking about the positive things, and then as part of the whole strategy, you, you identify what your what your strong points are, and then how you can capitalize on those to to move your community forward. Biddeford is a great example of doing that. Hmm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah Fran. What I would say is that there is something special in every community. And the, and the challenge is that if you're sort of the one that's working on these issues is you got to find out what that is. You got to find that heartbeat. You got to find what makes it what, why people care. I mean, there's a difference between just being grumpy or being um, dissatisfied. And people that are dissatisfied who want better are committed, engaged, and they're just not getting the results they want. And you can work with that. The people you can't work with are the ones that get, end up saying, I have got to the point where I'm totally complacent and it's going to be really hard to get me back. And find something that helps them be proud. In one community, our high school got selected as, and written about as one of the best ten in the country. And that was the only positive thing that we had going for us. But I rode that as hard as I could to turn that community around totally um, redo the entire downtown and um, all kinds of things. But it started with a spark. It started with something. And there is something in um, Libby, South Carolina. You just got to find the magic and help them believe. You know, help them believe that you can get them to a place where they can love their community again. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. So down to outcomes and tracking success. Uh, Martha from Pennsylvania has asked if uh, there are researchers working with your endeavor to demonstrate effectiveness of your community engagement. Uh, the Orton Family Foundation has actually used Doug Easterling. I think there's some information uh, that Leslie Wright has already written in there, so you can check in on that. So, yes, it's, it's important to see um, what is the effectiveness of this. How have we moved the needle forward? And we do that, and we encourage our communities to do that as well. I'm going to move on to uh, Shelley from Virginia. Ask, what outcomes have you identified in your efforts um, of community engagements? Did you achieve your outcomes? Uh, Kirsten, do you want to take that one on? I'd be more than happy to. I do believe I, I had to look for my I think you said you had five outcomes and yeah. you reached every single one of them. So in Cortez, we actually identified what our goals for the project were before we even started, and we set five goals. And by the end of it, I can say that we clearly met all of them and are continuing to work on them. But the five goals there were, one, partner with diverse community members, two, strengthen local organizations, three, engage youth, Four, create a community action plan. 
which is done and being worked on, like they're actually carrying out the action items. And number five, create a values-based land use code. And so that was very important to me because I felt that our land use code in Cortez was really old and outdated. And so we actually have, we, we put a lot of effort into that. And right now a new land use code is being developed. We were able to pull together a few different grant funds, get city council to contribute money, and it will probably be adopted within the next year. Um, but I think it's very important to determine at the outset, like, okay, we're not going to just do this heart and soul method for no reason. Have a purpose to it. One of those things you can use to ignite that fire under people like, hey, you care about this? Well, we're going to work on that project using this method, and so please tell us what you love and what, what changes you'd like to see so that you can track what you've done through the project. Great. Thank you, Kirsten. So we're, well, we're getting uh, almost near the hour, but we have a, a time for another question or two and then a concluding statement from everybody. I'd like to uh, turn to Mike for sustaining engagement. Uh, Stephanie from West Virginia, Barbara from Tennessee, and Linda from Washington State really are asking very similar questions about how you keep this going. So how do you sustain community engagement uh, from the local communities you work with? How does it last past the length of your program? What recommend, uh, recommendations do you have to su achieve sustainable uh, engagement? How do you keep this going? Mike, what are your, um, so since you're seven years or so down the road, what is your recommendation and are things still going on? Well, the City Council of Golden and the Planning Commission took the results from the heart and soul process and rewrote the comprehensive plan and then developed a whole series of uh, questions for uh, for developers to uh, address when they submitted when they submitted land use proposals. Those can be found on the City of Golden's um, uh, website and ask very specific questions. You know, how is your project going to improve the uh, the walkability of the uh, community? What are your um, how are you going to improve the bikeability? How are you going to meet our sustainability goals? So all those questions are still getting asked today and um, talked about in every land use uh, case that comes before Planning Commission or City Council. So people see, I think, that what they did um, back in 2009, 2010 is still a controlling force. Because one of the one of the principles that everybody said is we want to we want to direct our own future. So, you know, people can see that that's being done. We did follow that up too with the uh, planning staff going out into neighborhoods and developing very specific neighborhood plans. And neighborhoods, you know, are pretty much self-identified, right? You know, this is we think this is a neighborhood. Well, part of our process at our meetings was draw a picture of where your neighborhood is. So we had a pretty good idea of uh, how to get a cohesive group together and say, okay, let's do, let's make this very specific now to your neighborhood. So we did continue that. So I think that that, that process is still, um, is still resonating. And the, you know, the question that staff and council is always asking, okay, we know we get new people all the time. And how do we get how do we get that involved and keep them involved? And um, we we rank you know like the Gallup Well Being Survey ranked Golden very high as far as people feeling and believing that they had a, a say in their community that they were listened to. And so it's um, 
you know, if you do it right and you and you make concrete uh, adjustments to to continue it, I think I think the word spreads. Terrific. And Mike, just another quick follow up because you said you were you're willing to tackle this question. What are things that warrant community engagement, and what doesn't? A quick response um, as before we get to our final comments. Well, certainly, the, anything as massive as the, as the heart and soul process has to focus on big picture stuff, right? And you know, what's your what's your overall values? What's the what's that spark? What's the thing that makes you most proud of? How are you gonna you know how are we gonna how how are we gonna make this concrete? You can't do this kind of process for every little thing. Uh, you have to obviously for your land use issues, you have to go through very strict legal processes, um, and then. It's hard to know, you know, exactly specifically what the what the questioner had in mind. Obviously, people in Bibles uh, felt that that the staff, you know, had to have a lot of discussion and and making decisions and and asking people. And and if council feels that you've really got the root of the of the thing, I think that they then they're more welcoming to um, the people coming into the council meeting and 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 expressing their opinion on stuff. Okay. Um, I'd like to give uh, our three guests uh, just a final sum summary thought. Uh, know that one of our staff or one of our guests will answer the other questions uh, that you have put in. Uh, so none of the questions will be forgotten. We've got them all, and we will work on answering all of them. Um, so back to Jim. Uh, some uh, Concluding thought that you had or an immediate step people can take to bring authentic engagement to their residents? Um, last night we did our goal setting process with the council and the mayor who is in his third term, so um, he's been the mayor now for five years. And he said to um, the council members um, as we were talking about how we were going to make decisions versus what decisions we we're going to make. He made the comment that not a day goes by now that he doesn't hear from both strangers and friends about how wonderful it is to be in Bedford and what a great things that are going on. Um, you know, we've, we've had some challenges, and if you go Google the community, um, you'll see that it's been tormented by accusation of underage sexual um, activity with uh, police officers and a, a number of things, um, but yet we have not let that um, end up sort of um, interfere with our ability to continue on. Uh, the council's looking at um, potentially doing a four to five million dollar river walk along the falls in the in the community. We're working hard on. Um, trying to find ways to be able to deal with the parking problem, and, and we may end up with our first parking garage, which is, for those who have ever done parking garages, you know, those are not easy. Um, as you think about this cycle of engagement, um, I think uh, the people that have talked about um, have your citizens fall in love with your community. Um, falling in love is part of it. Keeping them in love with your community um, it means that you're going to have the daily conversations. The conversations mean you have to listen as well as tell. Uh, so don't be afraid to do some interesting and crazy things. One of the things I've done in my, my lifetime is we had a, uh, an opportunity for people to meet with the council, a formal council meeting, and we did it, as uh, we would say here in Maine, we did it over a, a beer in a bar. And so um, whatever it takes, do it. Thank you. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you so much, Jim. You've been great. Uh, Kirsten. I just want to say, don't be afraid to jump into the heart and soul process. 
identify what you want your outcome to be, but just roll with it and engage community members. Help them feel like their voice matters. Um, engage your elected officials, of course, early and often and make sure that they know what's going on so that as they're making decisions, they reflect what the community is asking for and needs. And just, you know, go with it and know that you will find pride in your community and everyone that lives there will just be very proud to be there and excited that, you know, the elected officials and staff are listening. So just give it a go. Great. And Mike? If I just make two points. Uh, one, our association with, uh, with the Orton Foundation, the Heart and Soul Process, was very helpful through the process. Certainly, you know, they have great knowledge and understanding and lots of good ideas. But also then when we came up with some wild and crazy idea, we could always blame it on these crazy people from Vermont. <laughs> so it kind of like that's how you use consultants, right? But it really worked. And then secondly, the, keep in mind that your, your community changes a lot. When I was hired in 1993, I was hired by a reformist council who had thrown the, thrown the rascals out, fired most of the staff, um, gone and got a new, um, got a tax increase passed, had had plans to take a downtown that was almost empty and do a streetscape, and they wanted to build a community center. Uh, that tax vote passed by 12 votes. But, you know, they were the reformers, and so they hired me, and we hired lots of good people. We were doing, you know, some wonderful things. But as time went by, some of those People on the, some of those guys, and they were guys, um, on the city council started to become one of the grumpy old men. And they, one of them particular, would, one or two of them would come, call me and complain about all the bike riders in town, all the bicyclists, and how they, you know, they don't follow the traffic rules and how they make me slow down. And the, uh, the heart and soul process came around at just the right time because proved what, when staff pretty well felt that the, the tenor of the community now was pro-bicycling and anti-cars, and that these guys had, even though they were reformers once, they had become the old guard, and they had uh, they were not willing to to, to to recognize the changes that were happening in the community. So the heart and soul process really helped make that switch um, as the community had had changed over the years. So it was great timing. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, thank all three of you. I want to address just a few quick things before we go. Um, Ralph from Nevada is interested in nonprofit centers. You can go back to our archive in October. We talked about um, some of these co-op spaces. You might want to check back um, at the uh, Orton.org page for that. In February, we are really excited about uh, talking about stories that can lead to action on February 23rd. Uh, this is all very exciting stuff, and I'm sure they, uh, these are just as engaging. Go back and join us next time. So, again, I want to thank Mike uh, for all your good work and advice. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And Jim. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. Jim, you are terrific. Thanks for joining us. It was a great time. Thank you. And, Kirsten, thank you for um, sticking with us, and uh, your voice is beautiful. Thank you for having me, friend. And many thanks to all of you across the U.S. and uh, actually some international people also joined from 
India and um, South America, we are thrilled and welcome you anytime. Also, thanks to ICMA and the Orton Family Foundation and their folks who run the back room so well to make these sessions possible. For more ideas on public engagement, you can download the Orton Family Foundation's Public Engagement Resource Guide with practical tips and templates for crafting an engagement plan. There are zillions of resources at the bottom of this document, uh, so check them, check them out. There are lots of uh, wonderful ideas for you that may help also answer some of the good questions that you enter today. We also hope you take a moment to fill out a brief survey to help us continue improve our call series. So look for links on our resource guide, survey, and February event. Registration is possible now. Um, it's at the top of the Google Doc under announcements. A recording of this call will be sent to all of you participants and posted on our website at www.orton.org. You can also still add on to our Google Doc. Uh, we thank you all for your wisdom and your enthusiasm for your communities. Best to all of you, and bye-bye. Hope to see you next time.